This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. It's where we take a look at how things work in the land of steady habits, how they don't work, and how to make them work just a little bit better. Around America right now, there are calls to defund the police. What would that look like? Well, actually, it would move money from policing into other services that might help black communities that are disproportionately affected by police violence. At the state level, lawmakers are aiming at police accountability as part of their reform efforts. State Senator Gary Winfield of New Haven has been at the front of that for years. He wants his colleagues to act quickly and capitalize on the Black Lives Matter movement that has Connecticut residents in cities, suburbs, and rural towns marching. I talked to Winfield on Tuesday. It was a day after the Police Transparency and Accountability Task Force met at the Capitol. Winfield says that panel might take too long to make recommendations and that lawmakers... They have to act now. Senator Gary Winfield, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. How do you think we need to change the police in Connecticut? I said yesterday at a press conference, um, probably I've said it in a lot of, on a lot of these, that policing today is too connected uh, to its genesis, right? Through, through uh, those people who were rounding people up during slave catching times, those people who were enforcing black codes, all of the things that lead us to policing today. Uh, and so when you see uh, police interacting in uh, black and uh, communities of color in ways that don't make sense to a lot of people who have a different experience, there's a reason for that. Um, and I think we need to actually first acknowledge that that is uh, at the root of what we do in terms of policing and then figure out what we need to do. And that, and that has something to do with uh, consequences for actions. Consequences for actions. And, and to you, that's, that's one of the biggest pieces of this. Maybe you can tell me more about what exactly that would look like. Yeah, so, I mean, there are a couple of things, and we're still, of course, working on uh, what this would look like. Uh, but there are a lot of people, and I count myself among them, who uh, have looked at what has happened in this country for a very long time, once we started seeing video, and even in the early 90s when we got video, uh, seeing things that say to us, that when we look at them, we say, that can't be possible. Watch uh, if they ever make it to a, a court of law or to a prosecutor, and, and the officer walks away. Um, and... And, and that certainly has to change. So one of the things we're looking at is, is there a different way of uh, uh, dealing with these things? Uh, an independent prosecutor, uh, an inspector general, which we don't currently have, uh, some type of review board. And so all of those things are in the mix, but certainly when, whenever the bill is constructed, one of those things will be a part of the bill. What is the barrier right now to that happening? As, as you look at all the various barriers that, that, that get in the way of some of those things that you just talked about, what stands in the way? Well, I think that the thing that is in the way right now and has been in the way is political will. And there's always been a reluctance on the part of uh, some people in the legislature, some of that coming from uh, their understanding of what their community is and what their community wants, some of that coming from a pushback from the police unions uh, and, and various uh, efforts to stop this effort. But we are in a different day and time. You look out your window today, you might see people marching by. And when you see those people marching by, they're not just black and brown people. Uh, there are a lot of young people. There are a lot of young white people. Uh, there are a lot of people who never, never protested about anything who are in the streets right now. And they, they're not just holding a sign. They're not just saying no justice, no peace. They're demanding that we operate differently. And I don't think we get to get out of this by throwing them a bone, by throwing them a piece of legislation uh, that ticks off a couple of things, but doesn't really do anything. I think we have to actually reckon with the moment and that requires us to uh, do something significant. 
So let's get back to this this idea of consequences because people have tried to attack this problem of police brutality, police racism in a number of different ways. Consequences is one of them, and you've outlined what some of the problems are. Police unions get in the way. There's not political will. But there is also a sense that it's not just about holding bad cops, if we'll, we'll call them that, accountable. There's something about police culture that you talked about earlier that says our job is to do something that over and over again results in stuff like this happening. And so I guess I wonder if if you just attack it from the consequences piece of it, if you really get at the heart of what policing is in America and, and how easy is it to get at, at that heart? Well, I, I don't think it's easy to get at the heart of, of the problem. Uh, but the, 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 the notion around what you're asking is why I said we have to start at the very beginning with what policing and, and its roots are. Um, and and they're, they're, part of this will, of course, is through training. Uh, my focus isn't on training, but where we do look at training, I don't want to just look at an extra number of hours uh, as a solution. I want to look at what it is to train, who gets to train, how are they certified. You know, in some parts of our country, if you're uh, somebody who people like, uh, you get the job of being a training officer. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be actually qualified in the way that I would think you have to be on issues of uh, anti-bias training, uh, de-escalation, and, and, and some of the things we know should be part of uh, police training. Right. So th- there is a question about what training is, not just how much of it happens. And, and that will be part of what we're looking at as we, as we move forward. I will say that... Um, because I think people assume that people like myself are just coming up with these things and, and working as you feel like something should happen. I'm talking to uh, police officers who I know honestly believe you need to change. A lot of cities, Hartford, many cities around America are tackling this idea of whether or not we just spend too much money on policing. If we if we change our priorities in terms of where the money's going, maybe we'll get different sorts of behavior from the police. How do you broadly think about that movement of defund the police or shift the funding away from police towards something else? Yeah, as a politician, you know, <laughs> you hear defund the police and people start saying, are you crazy? But but it, it is a, a thing that we need to think about. Um, it, you know, if you, if you listen to people talking about crime in America being at 1969 level, the question is, well, why is funding police at 2020 level? Uh, and that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But which, what we need to recognize is that uh, when you engage with the police on these on these conversations, they will often tell you in response, um, you know, you're asking us to do things that we're not supposed to be doing, right? And when you ask them to do the things that are not supposed to be done, you have to give them money to do those things. If you shifted those those things to the places where they are supposed to be, you should shift the money to the places where they're supposed to be. And, and, and to be a little more clear, uh, basically we're asking police to interfere in places where social workers should be. Um, doing the work. Basically, we're uh, asking police officers to interfere in places where mental health uh, uh, experts should be involved. And, and, and you can go through a panoply of things. And I do honestly think that if you uh, were to shift and have the appropriate people responding, you would have uh, less uh, dangerous interactions, you would have better outcomes, and yes, you would have to shift the money. And I know that for a period in 2017, there was a report that came out for a period, New York uh, did an experiment. Uh, and when they had less aggressive, proactive policing, they had less crime as well. So so this is not something that is uh, just some crazy idea. Uh, we tested the theory uh, and, and we know how to do better. We just haven't done that. 
One of the reasons it's politically difficult, though, is because of the things you started with, which is people will say you're crazy. How could taking police off the street be a good thing? Let me just ask you to, to flip to the other argument here and say, what are police good for? I mean, what do you think we need police in American cities for? I think you need police in more of those emergency type situations. So I, I don't think that you need police if, uh, you know, if somebody's having a, 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 a a mental health breakdown, right? Like, why why showing up with a gun uh, to that situation makes sense to anyone? I don't understand. Uh, I, I think you know if something's happening in the moment and it's a dangerous situation, perhaps that's where you need police. But I also think we need to be thinking about how we even engage with the police. Oftentimes, um, we call the police to where we are when we could go to the police, right? Uh, and so it, it, the question is not simply about what do police do? It's also about how do we engage police because how we engage police also uh, has something to do with how these situations wind up being what they are. Yeah, you've got people showing up at a mental health crisis with a gun. Maybe that's not something that's going to help anything. But you also have uh, police showing up at just a peaceful protest looking like they're you know, an infantry battalion. Uh, when I talked last week with the treasurer, Sean Wooden, about this issue, I mean, that was the biggest thing that was on his his agenda list for this is how do we make it so that these police departments don't look like they're, they're military organizations? What exactly do we do about that? You know, under, under President Reagan, we started uh, shifting military equipment. Uh, certainly after 9-11, we uh, increased that. Uh, and we need to walk that back, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know why our police should have the same weapons. Uh, as uh, people who are in the battlefield. I remember one night I walked out of my house and I don't remember what was going on, but when I saw the, the weapon that police officer pulled out of his trunk, I couldn't believe he had a weapon that was that large. I don't know what that thing was. I know it could have taken down a lot of people. Um, and, and he didn't use it, right? But he stood on the street corner where people live and he kind of was like doing the kind of surveying thing with the, with the weapon. I don't believe that's what most of us believe our police should be doing. I don't think most of us think our police should be having tanks and uh, all of this other equipment. So we need to do a real look at uh, how that gets to uh, our um, our police departments, whether it's shifted for free uh, from the federal government or it's shifted to a grant program uh, and, and work to uh, divest ourselves of those things. Uh what does the state do? I mean, you're a, you're a state senator. What what happens out of Hartford that can change any of this at the town by town level? Whether or not it's it's the militarization of police or the way in which police are trained, so much in our state has to do with town control. So, what can you do about it from the capital? Well, I mean, I think some of this has to do with our um, ability to speak up and down the chain, right? So. Uh, I, I, I can have conversations with people at the municipal level, with mayors and first selectmen, about their approach. Um, similarly, I can have conversations with the federal delegation. Those things are happening right now in ways that uh, they have not happened. Um, and the state can choose to, um, although in Connecticut it's verboten pretty much, but state can choose to uh, intercede in ways that, it, that we don't normally intercede and uh, have something to say about uh, the 169 towns operating as 169 towns. And I think given what this situation is, given what the public response is, um, if there's a place where you would ever see that happen, this is it. You talked about a number of different ways to get at the, the, the transparency problem or the accountability problem. What about some sort of review boards, civilian review boards that actually allow for people to take a much closer look at how the police who are supposed to be policing them are doing their job? 
Yeah, I don't know why we don't do that currently. Um, you know, there, there are several ways of getting at that. Certainly, the legislative bodies and, and municipalities and legislative bodies could create um, entities of the legislative body that would have subpoena power. I don't know why we don't do that right now. Um, but if so, but if it makes people feel better for the legislature to do something to give them power that they currently have, I, I'd be happy to do that. One of the things the legislature did do, though, is, I mean, it created this police transparency and accountability task force, which frankly has not met very much over the course of its, its short life. The quotes that I read from you from the last couple of days suggested that it was not exactly moving as robustly or quickly as you would like it to. Do you think that that's been a, a I don't know, do you think that's been a failure? Do you think it's worked at all? So I, I'll be fair to the, the accountability uh, task force. So obviously we've been experiencing COVID, uh, which killed what would have been several meetings, most likely. Um, I don't think that the police accountability task force can move as fast as the moment requires. So at the beginning of uh, their uh, last meeting, I, I said that we will have a bill. We will be looking to do uh, significant reform in that. But there's still space for the, the task force because not everything's going to be covered by that. And so my, my point, if, if I'm making a public point, is that um, the, the, the task force was constructed so that it would release a report in January. This moment is right now. Uh, we have had uh, black people and brown people killed in ways that should never happen with the police. You go back to the, the um, Malcolm X grassroots movements, uh, every 28 hours report that was released in 2012. Uh, cop watch before that. We've been talking about this for a long time, but we haven't had a moment where we could actually do something. It would be a shame if this moment was here and we said, well, we have a task force that's going to release a report in January, so we'll wait on that report. And I, I just won't do that. So you'll have a bill. There's going to be some sort of special session, we we assume. What what do we know about that, about the possibility of you guys actually, first of all, getting together at all, and secondly, getting together to do this? So the leadership of the legislature has now uh, issued letters to the governor asking the governor to call us in a special session. We could we could do it on our own, but it's more convoluted when we do it on our own. It's much easier when the governor does it. Uh, so that should in indicate to the public that uh, we are actually looking to go into special session. The letters have, uh, I believe, said that the, the topics that we would like to cover are this very topic of police accountability, um, the topic of uh, healthcare, as you know, with COVID-19, the issue of healthcare and access to healthcare is a, is a real thing, particularly for communities of color, uh, and other things related to uh, COVID-19. Uh, so it, it's going to be, I think, a, a broader uh, special session than people might have thought it was going to be. And I think, given the moment in time again, uh, I think that's exactly how we should be looking at doing a special session. And if you get the bill that you want out of this, I mean, what, what are two or three things that bill does? It's going to be robust. I think it's going to be a bill that's going to touch on uh, a lot of areas, uh, many of the things we've talked about in the past. And, and here's what I've said to my colleagues. Um, I know this is a moment where you're going to be asked to uh, go further than you have been willing to go in the past. Uh, we need to do that. And if we fail, that's one thing. But if we don't try, that's a tragedy. Do you feel like you're going to get support maybe for the first time from some of your colleagues on the other side of the aisle? I do, and, and I will be. I will say that I've gotten some support from colleagues on the other side of the aisle. The three, the 2019 bill, which was Senate Bill 380. Um, you know, after uh, I said that we were going to do it, or I was going to pass out right doing a filibuster. Um, I, I I talked to my side, obviously, but I also had conversations with uh, 
uh, Senator Pagano and Senator Wickos about what the bill would look like and how they could bring some people along because I think they they understood, particularly after we saw uh, what happened in, in Weathersfield and what had happened in Bridgeport, that there was something that needed to be done. So um, they're not they're, the, the Republican side is not always a hundred percent willing to do what I'm willing to do, but um, at least in the Senate, I've had uh, what I would consider productive conversations with the Republicans. Uh, Senator, last thing for you and. Uh, Obviously, I know you're you're tired. You've been working a lot throughout this entire time. Um, you have been in the middle of a lot of fights around these issues over the years. What's something that surprised you this time around? Well, um, I, I think as it relates, I'll, I'll say I'll do both things in the current experience. As it relates to police accountability, the level of uh, the response, um, who's responding. Uh, I got a phone call the other day about protests in Enfield, uh, Connecticut. Um, somebody said they recollected it, a protest about 40 years ago in Enfield, Connecticut, and on this issue, right? So um, it, it it seems to have captured everyone, uh, people who you would not expect in places you wouldn't expect. Um, on COVID-19, what, what is surprising to me is that we're having the same conversations over and over again. Uh, I'm listening to people who've said that COVID-19 has revealed things uh, that we didn't know. One, that's not true. Uh, you know, we've had uh, issues before, including uh, medical uh, issues uh, of a pandemic nature. And when that happened, if you go back to the flu, uh, you know, 100 years ago that we were talking about, when that happened, there was a disparate impact on Black and Black communities. We know what happens when these things occur, except... Every time it occurs, we say, well, this is the time and it's going to be different. And I'll take you back a couple of years how I know that's not true. We had flooding in this country where black and black people died on our televisions. And people may not remember this, but in that moment, people said, this has to change. This can't happen. We will never see this again. We understand something we never understood. And we're here at COVID-19. So I, I'm just, I guess, I'm surprised that people are surprised mm -hmm. that we Right. You, you, you don't change it by watching it on TV and being outraged. You change it by getting up and saying, you know what, this was never my issue before, but I'm asking you, my elected official, to do something, even though those people are only my But But does that worry you that that, this, that that moment passed by, that so many moments have passed by in which we thought, OK, now people are going to get it. And here we are at another moment. We say now people are going to get it. I mean, does it does it worry you that we we are going to let this slip by and nothing's going to change? It does. You know, I, I say that time soothes everything, and if you if you let time pass by, this moment will be forgotten, except for people in academia who talk about it, or people like yourself who uh, do these programs where we unpack something. But the public, the public will forget. If you talk to the public right now, they're like, "Oh, that's right, Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, that was terrible, right?" But it's not ever present. It's not something that they look at and they go, we failed. And it, it hurts me to have failed and I'm going to make it my mission to do something about it. It's like, oh, that's right. We have the Hurricane Katrina. And if, if people like myself don't say in this moment, wake up, you think you're going to be here forever. You think you're going to fight this fight forever, even with the police accountability stuff. But I remember, you know, when Wall Street collapsed, <laughs> and people people occupied Wall Street literally, and, and that became the name of the movement. That's what people said when I was down there. We're not going home. Well, they're not down there right now. 
Um, and, and I guess it's the, the, the view of someone who's been an activist for two years short of 30 years, right? Uh, that you, you look out and you go, over, over the breadth of my time, I've seen these moments that we forget were moments where people said, not this time. We're not going to stop. It's going to be different. And if people like myself who have that, that long view don't remind people of that in the moment, then it's easy for them to find themselves on a side where it's like, I, I can't believe I forgot, but I did. Senator Gary Winfield, thank you very much for joining us. It was always it's always good to talk to you and, do, and good to see you. And please get some rest uh, eventually, okay? I will. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's Steady Habits. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, please do it. You can visit our page, steadyhabits.org, or look for us in all the places you get your podcasts. We're just about everywhere now. Check out the mirror for a profile of a man who's heading up that police transparency and accountability task force. And join us this Thursday for the latest in our series of events with the International Festival of Arts and Ideas. We'll be talking about the issue that's at the heart of so many problems in America and right here in Connecticut, our longstanding policy of housing segregation. Check out artidea.org for more information. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson and were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Kyle Constable, and Beth Hamilton. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll see you next week.